Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. All right, so if you want to read along this morning, we're in um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and we're going to start off uh, in verse 18. Give everybody a minute to flip and click. All right. So, and Jesus said, uh, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Um, Thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, I ask that you would uh, be powerful and present in this room and that you would uh, just... I'll allow everyone to forget everything that I say that isn't of you, Lord. Uh, it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. Sounds a little echoey. Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm a deacon here at Church of the Well, and I have the distinct privilege of opening God's Word with you uh, this morning. We are in September, so we're going to go back to school to start out this morning, um, and we're going to learn a concept called expected value. Has anyone heard that term before? Okay, it's kind of like a weighted average. Um, I'm a nerd, so we're going to go through this, but I promise it's not. If you're the one of those people that like gets itchy when we talk about math, we're not going to get too bad. I promise, okay? Um, this is a lot of applications in economics, finance, statistics, etc. cetera, um, but I'm going to put it forward this morning as a helpful, if not maybe a little bit wonky lens through which we can view our faith. Expected value is a simple decision-making tool that helps us decide what types of risks are prudent to take. In other words, it helps us assess which choices have a potential benefit that outweighs a potential cost. We can calculate it by multiplying each of the possible outcomes by the likelihood that each outcome will occur and then adding them up. So said it another way, expected value is what you'd win if you made a certain decision times the chance of winning plus what you'd lose times the chance of losing. You can say that again. What you'd win times the chance of winning plus what you'd lose times the chance of losing. Okay, let me give you an example. So, if let's say we wanted to evaluate the decision to buy a $3 lottery ticket. If you win, you get $1 million, pre-tax, of course. Um, And your chances of winning are 1 in 10 million, okay? And if you lose, you spent $3 for the ticket, so you lost 3 bucks, uh, and the chance of losing is 9,999,999 out of 10 million, right? You have 1 out of 10 million odds. So, if you do that math in the formula that I just said, the answer is negative 2.89, which is very negative. Uh, which means that if you're going to spend $3, you would expect to lose $2.89 every time. So that basically, if there is no other takeaway from this sermon, uh, don't play the lottery. (laughs) The odds are bad, and God says not to. Um, There's reasons that I just transported you back to middle school, and it's not to bring up all of the fond, wonderful memories that we all have of middle school. Um, None of us needs that. (laughs) Um, It's because when we live as Christ followers, we are called to live and make decisions on how we spend our time, treasure, and talents with eternity written on our hearts. And when we learn to do that, it radically changes the math on how we decide to live and spend our time on this earth, what things we value and treasure, and what costs we are willing to bear for them. My goal this morning is to show you the arc across scripture, telling us why the supremacy of God over everything and our loving obedience to him demands the urgent spread of the good news of the gospel to every people, tribe, nation, and language to the ends of the earth. That is a tall order for one sermon, 
um, and I did not sleep very much last night. So that's going to require us to fly through a lot of texts uh, to connect those dots across Scripture. We're going to be anchored by the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that Becca already read, um, but we're going to read a lot of, a lot of Scripture. Um, try to follow along if you can. Uh, if you have your Bible, I hope you do, um, but we're going to move quickly, so if you get lost, just pick up on the next one. It's okay. Um, and for those of you taking notes, we're going to walk through three truths and three implications of those truths for our faiths as individuals and as a church body this morning. Okay. So the first truth is that Jesus is completely and supremely authoritative over all creation. Jesus is completely and supremely authoritative over all creation. We know from John 1, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus was with God and was God in the beginning. That verse says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was, not ma- was made that was not made. Um, so God's perfect and complete and total omnipotence, which is just a Christianese word that means all-powerfulness, um, is, a cer- is a central feature to him being God. It's innate to being a big G God. Um, and, and it's a non-negotiable requirement that big G God is perfect. Um, if he is imperfect, then he cannot hold us uh, to justly to a standard of sinless perfection. And he couldn't and also wouldn't require a perfect sacrifice in, in our place, which is Jesus, to reconcile us to himself. So if God were imperfect, if he was just like a really powerful dude, but not all powerful, then pretty much everything that's in this book starts to fall apart pretty quickly. Because God cannot be holding us to a perfectly just standard if he is not perfectly just. If he cannot hold us to a a standard of perfect righteousness if he is not perfectly righteous. And that means that sending Jesus, who is a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice for us, which is the only thing that can atone for that sin, uh, wouldn't be necessary. And why would he sacrifice his own son if he didn't have to? So are you starting to see where that goes? If God is not perfect and supremely powerful over all creation, then a lot of what we see in here doesn't make sense anymore. Um, So we have to believe that if we believe the Bible is true, we must believe that God is supreme. Now that we've established that he has it, the Bible says many times that God the Father has directly given Jesus all authority. Now we're not going to get into the Trinity this morning, but uh, God the Father holds that power, and throughout Scripture many times, including in Matthew 11, John 3, Ephesians 1, and even in Matthew 28, People often gloss over the very beginning of the Great Commission, which says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go, right? Normally we just say, go preach the gospel to all nations, right? There's actually a beginning part there that we often miss. Um, But this power has been given from God to Jesus. Matthew 11 says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Ephesians 1, God seated him on the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. It's all over scripture. This is the basis of every tenet of our faith, not least the resurrection, to predicate on the belief that God is authoritatively and supremely powerful over everything, and that he's bestowed that authority onto Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Implication one, that means that God deserves all glory from all peoples and all creation. So if God is supremely God, and Jesus has been given all authority, then he must be glorified by all peoples and all creation. Psalm 96 uh, makes this abundantly clear. So I'm going to read that one if you want to turn with me there. Um, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his, in his faithfulness. So all throughout there, we see two themes, right? The first theme is that nature, creation, is crying out to the Lord, right? The forests sing for joy, the field exults, the sea roars, the heavens be glad, the earth rejoices. It is abundantly clear that the songworthiness of who God is, is proclaimed in nature. It's also abundantly clear that the psalmist here is telling us that we need to do that too. Ascribe to the Lord, the glory and strength do his name, and on and on and on, right? Our, our, the idea here is that nature, phys, uh, created nature, is praising God by default, and we are also created to praise God by default. We are called to share the songworthiness of God's power and his mercy among the nations, and we should shout it from the mountaintops, right? I mean, the psalmist's tone here is clearly joyfully excited. Um, even the forests and trees sing for joy, and, and we ought to emulate that. Um, and in fact, this is what we were made to do. So Charles Spurgeon, who's a well-known evangelist, once said, God has so made man's heart that nothing can ever fill it but God himself. Right? So we have, it's a super cheesy Christian knees thing, but we have a cross-shaped heart, cross-shaped hole in our heart, right? And there's only one thing that can fill it. Um, and when that happens, uh, we sing for joy because that's what we were made to do. Um, and we can't help it, right? So, I mean, even in Luke 19, uh, there's another passage where Jesus says, uh, the, the Pharisees are basically telling Jesus' disciples to quiet down. They're, they're just exclaiming for joy at who he is. And he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Right? You guys have probably heard that one before. Um, this is something that creation was made to do, and we are part of that. And similar to the, re the same reasoning why we would say that God's perfection requires that in order for him to be God, he must be fully perfect and fully powerful. Um, similarly for that glory, he cannot receive just some of that glory. He must receive all of it. Um, he alone is worthy of all, of all praise. And the divine attributes that make him God are necessarily perfect, necessarily praiseworthy, and necessarily jealous for glory. Um, and God even gives himself that name in Exodus 34. Where he says, do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And when we say jealous, we don't think about it in our sense of like somebody got a cool new toy and you're jealous of it or a car or whatever. Um, rather, it's God's firm commitment to bring glory to himself and keep his people's consecration to him pure and not allowing it to be tainted by idolatry. So we cannot put other things on the pedestal next to God. He alone must receive all praise and glory. And that might seem a little strange or even a little vain in some senses, but this is a reflection of God's holiness. Because if he was allowing us to say, okay, well, we can worship Jesus, and we can also worship another God, or we can worship money, or we can worship something else next to him, then he would not be worthy of all of our praise. He would not be perfect, and he would not be God. So this is an absolutist argument, and it has to be in order for God to be capital G, God. Okay, so let's look at Revelation 5, if you guys want to turn with me there, um, and we'll see, alone, we'll see what this looks like one day. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll give you guys a minute to turn there. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. No one is worthy. As one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. I don't know why, but it says, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Why those come up as horns and eyes, I don't know. Um, And he went and took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every nation, tribe, language, and people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So no one was worthy, and then the lamb was worthy alone, right? Jesus alone is worthy of all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, and all of creation was made to praise him and cannot help but to praise him. We can't add to God's glory by giving him the glory that he deserves. He already has all of it. Um, But what we can do is lead and plead for more and more people to see and reflect and ascribe to him his glory more and more clearly. Okay, truth two. The church's obedience to the parting command of Christ in Matthew 28 is yet incomplete. So let's reread the Great Commission that Becca read to us from Matthew 28. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All nations here does not mean geopolitical countries like the U.S. and Canada and China. Um, It means people groups, or the Greek word is ethne, um, so like ethno-linguistic people groups or clans or tribes. We we don't have a perfect definition of what this means, um, but it it pretty much doesn't matter. Um, What it means is that we need people of every sort of corner of the gene pool, the global human gene pool, people of every ethno-linguistic people group, tribe, language, nation, um, to be calling on the name of Jesus. Um, And that's because he deserves praise in every language and through every cultural lens and from every branch of the gene pool and every corner of the earth, and not some, but all of it. Um, And that brings him more glory because the expressions of understanding of gospel faith through different cultural lenses and expressed in different languages uh, helps us understand more and more parts of God's character. Um, We took a class one time, uh, my wife and I, on a Frontier Missions course called Perspectives. If you ever come across it, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, And one of the images that we were taught in that class that really stuck with me is if you think about translations of the Bible into different languages or different expressions of faith and different ways that our faith can look uh, in different contexts, uh, some people would say, well, we do it the right way and you do it the wrong way. And there are absolutely right and wrong ways to express faith and right and wrong ways to translate scripture. But One way to think about that is if Jesus was standing here on this stage and you all are sitting in in your seats as all of the different people groups on earth, um, each of you is hearing me say the same thing. You see me wearing the same clothes and making the same mannerisms, but you see it from a slightly different angle. 
right? Because you're all sitting in a different seat. Um, and in the same way, we might think about the cultural mosaic and the language mosaic of the way that our world has decided to express uh, its humanity as a way that we can see, a lens through which we can understand God's character. Um, and there are parts of scripture that we, in our Western way of thinking, uh, cannot as accurately understand or appreciate as other parts of the world who think in a more collective rather than individual sort of way or make decisions as a group rather than as you know individual people. Um, and there's, there's a lot of examples there. Um, the way that it was described to us was that uh, God has put breadcrumbs throughout scripture um, and through the different lenses of cultural understanding of who God is, um, we can see different trails of those breadcrumbs, um, which I think is extremely beautiful. Um, but that, that adds to God's glory, right? If everybody, if everybody who called on the name of Jesus had the same, spoke the same language and had the same culture and looked at the world through the same eyes, um, that would be worse, right, than the way, that, the way that God has designed people across the world to see him in their own way through their own eyes and understand him in their own tongue and praise him with their own hearts. Uh, so there's this thing called the Joshua Project, um, and what it is trying to do is basically track all of these ethnic people groups. Um, it's a hard job, um, but they've made a, a good attempt to try to understand how many of these ethne, as the Bible defines them, there are in the world, and which of them have access to the gospel and which ones don't. Um, so they've come up with um, essentially a, a total, which is 17,427 of these ethnic people groups across the world. Uh, and according to their count, which as far as I can tell is the most informed or accurate estimate, 7,415 of them have zero access to the gospel in 2022. So that's more than 42% of these people groups that, need, that God has called someone from uh, who have their own ethno-linguistic view on scripture and who God is and a deeper understanding of God through that lens than we could ever have. Uh, and they don't have access to the gospel yet. So there's a, a daily effort essentially to pray for one of these people groups each day um, and if there are 7,415 of these groups and we pray for one a day, that takes more than 20 years. Think about that. Today's people group is the Zarma people of Niger, which is a country in West Africa. They speak a language from the Songhai family. Uh, it's a large people group. They have about 5 million people. And most of the people in the group are Islamic or an animist or some mix of both. Um, there's a lot of witchcraft and, and other dark things uh, practiced in this group and 0.2% of Zarma peoples uh, follow Jesus. So I'd encourage you to pray for them uh, and join the effort to pray for more than uh, more unreached people groups each day. Um, I think the website is joshuaproject.net. Um, and in fact, if you want to pray for more than one a day, then this will be less than a 20-year project for you. Um, but I highly encourage you to do that. That's a staggering, gut-wrenching fact, and it should make you weep. Um, because having no access to the good news of Jesus is not a free pass to salvation. Uh, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's in Romans 3. Um, and not all are, none are innocent, and we cannot plead ignorance before God's just throne. Um, so I've heard it said before, too, well, people would say, well, what about the, the innocent guy in Africa who's never heard the gospel? He lives his whole life and dies. He goes to hell. Is that just? And the problem with that argument is that there's no such thing as an innocent guy anywhere, um, because we have all sinned. Um, and what God tells us in Romans 1 is that, uh, actually, let's read this first, and then I'll, I'll go into this. Uh, Romans 1, 18 to 23 says, What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been created, so that men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like birds and animals and reptiles. What that basically means is that no one can claim ignorance to God's existence because of the creation that they're surrounded by. Uh, what that doesn't mean is that everyone should immediately know who Jesus is. Uh, tremble at this thought. There are billions of people on earth right now whose knowledge of God is only sufficient enough to damn them to hell forever. They may have never heard the name of Jesus, they may never know there is a Redeemer, that there is hope, but they know just enough of his existence to reject him, that to deserve his wrath, and that's it. That's where the story ends for them. They've never heard there is a Redeemer, and they are utterly hopeless in that state. Implication number two, this means that in joyful obedience to God's supreme authority, we must seek the glorification of God from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Practically speaking, there is hope. We have the antidote. Can you imagine if you discovered the cure for cancer and kept it to yourself? How much time does this spend on your shelf instead of being talked about? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and we hold the cure in our hands, and we fail to share it with people dying eternal deaths all the time. We're commanded by Jesus himself to go and make disciples of all nations, and then the end will come. It's in Matthew 24. We're going to come back to that. We have a lot of work to do. Um, and I feel the church, particularly in this country, has missed the urgency of this command. One way to measure this, this is just one metric, um, but in this country, uh, it, is an it is estimated that about 3 to 5% of churchgoers give money to their local church. I hope that number is much higher in here, um, and we're going to go with 5% as a generous estimate. About 25% of those 5% uh, give less than one-tenth of their increase, which is what God commands us to do. Of that giving, we as the collective American church give about 2% of our budgets to missions at all. Um, and of that missions budget, 2% of that 2% goes to getting to the gospel to the 7,415 unreached peoples in the world. So back to our math. Uh, some of you are getting itchy. If we multiply those proportions together, 0.0000005% of churchgoer income in this country, by almost every measure, the wealthiest country on earth, is going to reach the unreached. 0.0000005%. Somebody please tell me why that is. We must urgently obey the Great Commission. Uh, when, my mom, when I was growing up, my mom used to say to my brothers and I that delayed obedience is disobedience. I think that's a good word for lots of things. Um, but I think that also holds a lot of wisdom for the church in regard to the urgency of the Great Commission. If we don't see Jesus' parting command, this was the last thing he said before he went to heaven, right? So it was probably pretty important. Um, if we don't see that as urgent, or if we ignore it entirely, we either don't truly understand the saving power of the gospel, we don't believe it, or we are actively rebelling against God's will. Those are the three choices. If you're a Christ follower, the first two don't apply to you. So then you have three more choices. Uh, John Piper, a pastor that does a lot of very good preaching, says it this way. He says, there's only three choices for a Christ follower when confronted with the command of the Great Commission. Go, send, or disobey. That's it. So what does that mean? Go means that you answer the call that God might be putting on your heart to lay down all of this 
and move to a very hard place and learn a very hard language and be faced with difficulty, even persecution or death in the name of making Jesus famous and bringing him glory from a people group that currently only know enough of who he is to damn them forever. Sending would be praying fervently and giving generously to enable other people to do that. And disobeying would be ignoring the urgency of the Great Commission and actively rebelling against God's will. Those are the choices. A pastor I love and respect once said, difficulty is never a reason to disobey. Obedience is not a luxury of the blessed. It is a necessity of the redeemed. I'm going to let that speak for itself. Even when it is difficult, we can take comfort in the fact that the outcome of those efforts is certain. God has promised that he will claim his people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, um, and therefore it will happen because God said it's going to happen. Likewise, he has already paid for the life of the souls. Uh, he has already paid the life of his son for the elected souls of the unreached. So why would God pay the highest price of all time for souls he does not intend to claim as his own? Why would he put Jesus on the cross if he wasn't going to ransom those people he said he was going to ransom? That means we have work to do. And we won't know that the job is done until there are disciples of Jesus Christ from every nation glorifying him and when Jesus returns. I said we'd come back to Matthew 24, and here it is. The gospel, verse 14, it says, The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Uh, an evangelist in the 1950s named George Ladd said, Christ has not yet returned, and therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come, and our responsibility is not to define the terms of what an ethnic people group is, but to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. Okay, so let's recap. Jesus is completely and supremely powerful over all creation. That means that God deserves all glory from all peoples and all creation. We are commanded to seek the glorification of God from every nation, and we haven't done it yet. Our obedience to that command is not yet complete. So that naturally leads us to place making long-term, Jesus-honoring, death-defying disciples as the primary goal of the church. Why does the church exist? The church does not exist so that we can eat pastries and sing songs. It, it exists to bring Jesus glory. Truth number three, the eternal glory of Jesus is the ultimate goal of the church, and therefore it must be worth any price. So we understand this. The mission statement of our church right here is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who find their greatest joy in his glory. Paul also understood this. Uh, Mark 10, 29 to 30 says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children in the lands with persecutions and in this age to come of eternal life. So Jesus promised it. Paul understood it. We understand it. Um, and he promised to be so much for us that when our life on mission has ended, we won't be able to say that we've sacrificed anything. Uh, what that means is that there's nothing that Jesus could ask you to endure that is greater than the sacrifice he has already made for you. You can't out-sacrifice Jesus. So let's go back to that formula of expected value. I'll remind you, it says, what you'd win times the chance of winning plus what you'd lose times the chance of losing. So if the eternal glory of a supremely valuable Jesus is what we win, if the chance of winning is certain, uh, the, thing, the worst thing we can lose in our life this side of heaven is our life, which regardless of the way it ends, we can count it joyfully as loss, as Paul said, and the chance of losing is quite low. The expected value of eternity is infinitely high. 
and the way that we live and spend our time, treasure, and talent must radically reflect that expectation. There's another famous quote from a missionary. Uh, his name was Jim Elliott. He was a missionary martyred by some, uh, a people group called the Huarani people in Ecuador in 1952. He and three of his friends landed a plane uh, onto a sandy beach uh, in the middle of the jungle to go bring the gospel to these people and were immediately speared in the heart and left for dead in the river. Um, and there's a lot of amazing things that came out of that. Um, in fact, this entire people group came to know and accept Christ. Um, his widow actually wrote a really amazing book about this. Highly recommend you guys look into his story. Um, but he said something that uh, I will never forget and has been uh, shared widely around the world, which is, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This leads us to implication number three. The church needs to be willing to pay any price for obedience to this goal. We must expect and be willing to sacrifice, suffer, and die for the sake of, gospel, of the gospel if we are called to. It may not sound intuitive initially, but this is actually how we relate to Jesus because he's the one who bled and died for us. 1 Peter 4, um, if you want to turn with me there, starting in verse 10. I'll give you a minute. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. For whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Okay, this doesn't mean that everyone is called to suffer and die, or to go to the ends of the earth and the hardest corners of the world for the sake of the gospel. Um, but some of you might be, statistically some of you might be, um, and we all must be willing um, so I would encourage you that if you feel a tug on your heart and you're saying, hmm, I wonder if that might be me, uh, please don't suppress that, um, but explore it. Um, and I just so happen to be our de deacon over missions efforts at our church, so you can come talk to me about it. Um, but we all must be willing. Fortunately, if eternity is written on our hearts, then this world is not our home. The worst thing someone can do to us is kill us, and then we get to be with Jesus. As Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, our church supports a missionary in Turkey. Um, his name is Pastor Karem. Um, he is an amazing person. He was here three years ago, before COVID, um, and he's hopefully going to come back in the summer next year. We're working on that. Um, and we are probably going to send a few of you guys to go visit him next year as well, so we'll talk about that at some point soon. Um, but he is... A uh, guy with an amazing story and amazing heart, and I won't get into it now, but he has said it this way. Um, when he's had uh, Turkish police putting warrants out for his arrest and banging down his door um, because he's sharing the gospel, um, he literally got quoted in the newspaper one time in Antalya, Turkey, where he lives, saying, you cannot threaten me with glory. And he chuckles at the fact that they decided to publish that quote. He loves it. Um, but the worst thing that they can do is send you to be with Jesus. Okay, so church... What do we do with this? We store up our treasures in heaven and not on earth. Um, Kevin says it all the time. It's Kevin's life verse. I think it's tattooed on his arm that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him from Luke 9. Um, and that's Luke 9, 23. But if you actually read 24 and 25 right after that, it says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? How much you believe this can be easily seen in how you live your life on this side of heaven. Do you spend your days building an earthly kingdom, seeking your own comfort and your own pleasure, or do you live like somebody who is joyfully ready to lay it all down, count it all as loss, in joyful obedience to the God who ransomed you with the blood of his Son? Are you a sold-out disciple of Jesus, or are you just a casual fan? When we exit this world, we can't take anything with us. So why are we trying to accumulate so much on this side of death's door? We are called to maximize the worship of the glory of God at the risk of suffering or even death. We live with targets on our back, but the expected value of eternity is always enough to choose Jesus over this world. The benefit always outweighs the cost. The reward always outweighs the risk. The prize is an unfading crown of glory, an inheritance of heaven, eternity at the feet of Jesus, and joy in this life. And the absolute worst the risk can be is the full and infinitesimal scope of your life on earth. When we live to maximize anything else that is temporal on this earth, we miss the greatest thing that this world has to offer. We don't run to Jesus for comfort in this world. We run to Jesus because he's better than anything this world has to offer. So, how can your life display the worth of Christ? I would challenge you to spend your time, your treasure, and your talents in such a manner that shows that Christ is more valuable to you than comfort and pleasure and status and security. John Piper says, the way that we display the supreme worth of Jesus in our lives is by treasuring Christ above all things and then making life choices that show that our joy is not finally in things or in people, but in Christ alone. All right, so ask yourselves these questions. If you could be immortal and young and I'll give you successful and attractive and rich and popular in this world, would you take it? Does your, does your desire for Jesus' return outweigh your desire for earthly things? Even good earthly things like family and marriage and children and school and fruitful work. On which side of heaven do you store your treasure? If you do believe that Jesus is supreme and worthy of all glory, then what are you doing to joyfully obey the command to make disciples that find their greatest joy in that glory? And lastly, what about your life displays the treasured worth of Jesus above all things? And what needs to change for you to be all in? Pray with me. God, I thank you that you have... Uh, ransomed us, that you have um, given us a name that is uh, called your name, Lord, that you've allowed us to be um, one of your elect, that, that you've given us uh, just the, the safety and security that we need to be um, eternally in love with you. Um, but Lord, we also thank you that you haven't given us a desire for uh, safety and security and comfort and pleasure in this life, Lord. Um, we pray that you would allow this body to be active, willing, joyful, sacrificial participants in your parting command of the Great Commission. Um, and Lord, I pray that uh, we would be all in in storing up our treasures in heaven and, and not on this earth. Um, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that um, today would be the day that they would um, understand how much you love them, um, that it would bring them to their knees, um, and that they would understand that 
the supreme God of the universe uh, has chosen them, uh, Lord. And for, for those of us that know you, Lord, I pray that we would be um, ready and willing um, to count this life as loss um, for the sake of your glory, um, because it is always worth it. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.